Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Michael Slepian is the Sanford C. Bernstein and Company Associate Professor of Leadership and Ethics at Columbia University, a recipient of the Rising Star Award from the Association for Psychological Science. He is the leading expert on the psychology of secrets. He has authored more than 50 articles on secrecy, truth, and deception, and his research has been covered by the New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, and more. And today, he's here to chat about his provocative and fascinating new book titled The Secret Life of Secrets, How Our Inner Worlds Shape Well-Being, Relationships, and Who We Are. Michael, welcome. Thanks for having me. It is great to have you. I get so many books sent for pitches for the show. And when I saw your title come across, The Secret Life of Secrets, I really paused and said, wow, now that is a provocative title. Let me open this one up. And I started reading and you've got a really powerful personal story behind the why of this book and that call you received from your dad. So so let's start there, the why behind The Secret Life of Secrets. So back in 2013 uh, is when this story takes place. And I had already been studying secrecy for about a year or two. And I was on an interview at Columbia where I was presenting this new research on secrecy. And this whole day was about presenting this research to the people who would become my future colleagues. And so that interview went the entire day, starting from breakfast all the way through dinner and and drinks afterward. And so I'm having drinks with these folks and it's like getting close to midnight and I get a call from my dad. And I think that's weird. He doesn't call me normally out of the blue, let alone around midnight. And so I just, you know, I I don't take the call. I'm still at drinks with these with everyone. And then I got another call, uh, maybe a half hour later. And at that point, I start thinking, oh no, something, something bad has happened, something tragic. And so I call my dad back, and he says, Michael, I need to talk to you. Um, you know, maybe you should sit down for this. And he goes on to tell me that he is not biologically able to have children. He's telling me that he's not my biological father. That I was born by, you know, donor conception, artificial insemination. Um, He's also telling me that so is my younger brother, born five years later, and so conceived with a different donor. And as you can imagine, that's incredibly shocking information to learn. And um, I readily accepted it, though. I thought, okay, you know, my friendships, the the people I'm close to, um, you know, a lot of my relationships aren't based on genetics. And so, you know, what does it matter whether family relationships are based in genetics. It it was kind of unsettling to learn that my brother, who I'm very close to, is is in fact a half-brother. But what really shook me was the secret keeping. And it turned out that my entire family, apart from my younger brother and I, knew this secret the whole time. Wow. And I'm sure you didn't go, okay, now let's dive deeper into the research and, and write a book immediately. Talk to me a little bit about um, I'm pro- about that process. And I have so many follow-up questions. It's fascinating. But like what what went through, like how did, how did you kind of work through this? Okay, yeah. <laughs> so you know, the funny thing about this story is that I, I learned this major thing 
the first thing I do is like try to call um, the person who's now my wife a bunch of times and she's unavailable. And it's like driving me crazy. I don't know that I can't speak to my confidant yet. And I'm just like, oh my God, I, I need to tell people about this. And and so for a while, it was just sort of telling my friends about this like crazy thing that has happened to me and just getting used to this new idea. And then for a very long time, that was the end of that story where we learned this major secret. It's out now. Uh, that's it. it. It wasn't until I started writing this book that I started asking my parents more questions about what it was like to have this secret. And I learned a lot of things I didn't know about and asking them more about that. And it really goes on to show you that even secrets that are out, we don't talk about our secrets. And so we really fail to understand their implications or and, and so I, I was shocked to learn this, all this new information about what it was like for my parents to have this secret when, I'm, when I start writing this book. One of the most surprising things, or, you know, first of all, they told me what it was like to have that secret, something I did not ask about them years ago. And they essentially told me stories that mapped on to what I was finding in my own research at the time, which is they would say, what made it difficult to keep that kind of secret was not the conversations where we would occasionally think about the secret. Um, you know, once in a while we'd be talking about like who took after, you know, did I take more after my mom or dad? Did my brother take more after, you know, my mom or dad? And, you know, those kinds of conversations would certainly make them think of the secret, but they didn't find it hard to keep the secret in those conversations because first of all, when we were really young, they thought, oh, maybe it's too young to tell that they wouldn't understand this yet. But even when the secret was on their mind, it wasn't hard to hold back. You just don't say it. It's not like we are ever asking point blank, are we genetically related to you? And so it wasn't the what was required in conversations that made that secret difficult to keep. It was having to think about the secret outside of those conversations and, and starting to wonder how we made the right decision here. And that really maps on well to what I find in my research, which is the hard part of having a secret it's not the conversations when you're holding it back that turns out to be the, the easier part. The hard part of having a secret is just living alone with it in your thoughts and, and being uncertain about what you're doing and, and are you doing the right thing. And, you know, it's it's very easy to feel bad about these decisions when we're entirely alone with them. I'm going to start high because, you know, to tell you the truth, I never really thought much about secrecy, privacy, small secrets, big secrets. What's a secret? What's not a secret? What are the types of secrets? Like, there's just so much to unpack here, and and your book really got got me thinking. And so let's let's start high. What's what constitutes a secret? How do you define a secret? So the definition turns out to be important here. And so I define a secrecy as the intention to withhold information from one or more people. That definition helps us distinguish secrecy from privacy, but it also helps us understand that. Sometimes we need to act on that intention. Sometimes we need to conceal a secret when it's relevant to a conversation, but the intention exists before those conversations and it exists afterwards too. Our secrets don't just disappear after these conversations where we hold them back. They exist afterwards and, and beforehand. And so that's where it feels like our secrets were like carrying them around with us. And what's the distinction between, in your mind, the, the fine line between secrecy and privacy? 
So it's easy in in reality, it's a blurry line because you can have a mix of, of both when you're holding something back. But we can draw a line between the two, and that is comes down to this intention again. And so, if the reason that people don't know this thing about you is you are intentionally withholding it from others, then it's a secret. Um, things that we consider private is something we would be willing to discuss if we were talking to the right person or the setting was was appropriate. So you know, people a lot of conversations around sex don't feel appropriate in all situations or, or even talking about money, but that doesn't mean you have secrets around those issues. Um, if the reason people don't know this thing is because you're specifically holding it back, then it's a secret rather than just merely private. And you just mentioned sex and money. What are, what are some of the most common secrets we keep? Yes. So sex and money are also common secrets too. Those are both things that we will often consider private and not talk about, but we also have specific secrets around sex and money. Those are among the most common secrets. Also secrets about romantic desire while single. Another common secret um, is you're, you are in a relationship and you have some kind of romantic thought about another person. I call that extra relational thoughts. Family secrets are common. Ambitions are, are a common secret. Do you distinguish between, okay, big secret, small secret? So this is important. Um, before my research, the way people studied secrecy was they would study just one secret at a time. And so the reason why that doesn't get you very far is, you know, that prior research would, would be asking, is secrecy bad or good? But the reality is that there's not just one kind of secret. Um, and so when I do my research, I study people's entire set of secrets, both the small ones and the big ones. And why that's important is once we start looking at a person's set of secrets, we can start asking not just are secrets bad or good, but which of your secrets hurt you and why? Yeah. So let's stay there. I think that's interesting because you know we talk about health and happiness here all the time. And so I think for some people, there are secrets they're keeping where there's a benefit. And for other people, that secret is, has no benefit. It's, it's hurting them, whether it's their mental health or physical health, it's all connected here. That's what we believe. So, so how do you think about that? Like what's going on in the brain? What's going on in the body when we're keeping a secret that is, is weighing on us, we feel the weight versus a secret that we're benefiting, we're benefiting from it's, it's, be, it's better kept with ourselves. How do you, how do you think about that? Right. So when people keep secrets, they're trying to protect something. Maybe they're concerned about how people will think of them or they're concerned about their reputation. So they're protecting themselves in that sense. But also we might be trying to protect other people, other people who could be hurt by the secret or our relationships with those people, if we think that could somehow damage our relationships if this information came out. So in all cases, people are trying to protect something. And so in most cases, people are protecting whatever this, this thing is that they're protecting, except there's this downside where the average secret also hurts our well-being. And so there are worlds where we haven't certainly calibrated this correctly, where the benefit we think we're getting is not as great as we think it is, and the cost is greater than we think it is. And the secrets that can really weigh us down are, it turns out, not the secrets we frequently have to hide in conversation. So it turns out the frequency with which you need to hide something in conversation isn't related to how burdensome that secret is, 
but it's the frequency with which your mind returns to the secret outside of those conversations that really predicts the harm of, of secrecy. And so it's simply having to think about the secret again and again in your thoughts. That seems to be where the harms begin. And is there a certain number of secrets that the average person has? And do you cross a threshold where, you know what, less than five, okay, that's the average. You cross five, um, you know, you're, you're, you're in trouble. So the way I do a lot of my research is we have this list of 38 categories of secrets that we know people commonly keep. And we know that this list really comprehensively covers what people typically keep secret because when I show it to people, um, the average person, you know, 97, 97% of people have at least one secret from the list right now. The average person has 13 secrets from this list of 38 at any given time. Again, remember, this includes small ones and big ones. It's not like we have 13 big ones at all times. But so what does it mean if you look at this list and you have less than 13 or, or more than 13? It's not necessarily a problem to have a secret. No particular secret necessarily is, is harmful to you. When a secret is harmful to you is when you find yourself ruminating on it, when you find yourself stuck on it, when you find yourself unsure what to do or feeling ashamed. Um, and there's ways to work through those issues. But another way in which you might have a secret is that you just have a habit of secret keeping. And if that's why you have many secrets, this is clearly a problem um, for health and well-being. The kind of person who habitually keeps secrets as a way to deal with problems is someone who is not working on those problems. Um, if you just push them away and you're too afraid of opening up and you think people will respond in the worst way to your disclosures, you're not having the conversations you need to be having to work on these these things that you're keeping secret. So on the list of 38, what was the most surprising for you when you're doing this research? You say, wow, that made the list, really? <laughs> I, I can tell you the one that I was surprised that made the list. And, and you know, when we made this list of these 38 categories of secrets, I, I never, we were just trying to document what, the, what secrets were most commonly kept. I didn't know at the time that I would then use this list in every single one of my studies. Um, one one of the categories that it's like, wait, what? That's one of the categories um, is not currently having sex. <laughs> that's That turns out to be as a common secret uh, that people keep, um, or it feels like a secret when, when that's your situation. Um, you know, we think about all these secrets about sex, but not about no sex. Uh, so that was certainly a surprising one. And on that subject, infidelity is on there. To me, it seems like that one would tremendously weigh on someone if they're keeping a secret about infidelity. But what does is, what is the science say around infidelity and secret keeping and, and how common that is and what it's doing to someone or family? So it turns out that this is not an uncommon experience. So one in three people of the thousands of people I've surveyed say at some point in time they've committed infidelity. And so it's important to know that doesn't mean one third of people right now have cheated on their partner that they're currently with. This could be someone from, this could be a prior relationship, but we're talking about in their lifetime, people, you know, one third of the people say there's a point at which they've committed infidelity. Of those people, about a third say they eventually do confess it. Uh, another third say they don't reveal it to their partner, but they reveal it to a third party. They confide in someone else. And then the last third keep it entirely to themselves, um, a complete secret. And so it's a common experience. 
um, it can weigh on you like any other secret. And so it's the kind of secret that we often find hard to deal with on our own and often can find ourselves ruminating on it and, and not sure that we've made the right decision. It's also one of the most complicated decisions that you could make when it comes to revealing a secret is should you reveal this to your partner? This is probably the hardest version of this question because you might be getting it off your chest. You might be lightening the load for you at the same time as making your partner feel a whole lot worse or perhaps even damaging the relationship irreparably. This could destroy the relationship. Um, And so a, a question that many people often face is whether they should reveal this to their partner. You're touching on confessing and confiding. And so in terms of benefits, you know, I think you touched on that, but, but if you could be more specific, how you think about the benefits of confessing and confiding and, and how does one identify the right person to confess or confide in? So whether it's confessing or confiding to the person you, you hurt or just to someone else, like how do you think about other benefits? Just telling someone what I, if you're revealing a secret to a person you're keeping that from, I call that confession. If you're revealing it to someone else, I call that confiding. And so let's talk about confiding first um, because it's it's less complicated uh, and we can do confession after. So confiding a secret in someone, that usually pays off pretty well uh, because you get to talk about the secret with someone without revealing it to the person you're keeping it from. And so we see the average experience of confiding a secret is that people feel like they get something really helpful out of it. Maybe it's validation, maybe it's advice or guidance, maybe it's emotional support, maybe it's just someone listening and saying and sort of saying, yeah, that's tough and you know, I'm here for you. Whatever it is, people feel like they usually get something out of confiding a secret and it seems that a little help seems to go a really long way. One reason why people get so much out of confiding might be because they're choosing the right people to confide in. And so who turns out to be a good confidant? People who are compassionate turn out to be really good confidants, as you could imagine. These are people who are caring, not judgmental, empathic. These people have a lot to offer when it comes to confiding a secret. But then also people will feel that they get a lot out of confiding to assertive people. People like to confide in people that they see as assertive. And that's because this is someone who's going to push you to do the thing that you need to do. As far as things that make someone not as good of a confidant, um, one thing you don't want to do is confide a secret in someone who will be totally scandalized by what you're telling them. Um, if what they find, if what you're telling them, they find to be morally reprehensible, they're more likely to tell a third party about that secret as a way, essentially, of punishing what they see as a moral behavior that you just confided in them. So you want to choose someone who will have a similar set as set of morals as you do. Um, you don't want to provoke a strong moral reaction in, in your confidant. So we don't usually do religion here, and I'm not Catholic, but I start, you start to talk about morals and confession. I'm thinking, okay, for our Catholic listeners, is there any benefit to, for, for someone or non-Catholic, anyone walking into confessional, whether you're Catholic or not, and just randomly confessing to the priest in the, I don't even know what you call it, the box, <laughs> stranger. <laughs> is there any benefit to that? 
Yeah, so there's something that's common to confession in the Catholic sense. I'm also not of that religion, and so I don't know this firsthand. Um, But what's compelling, what's sort of really nice about confessing to someone in that context or confessing to a therapist or even confessing to a fellow bar patron is these are people who will keep your secret entirely safe, um, who don't know the people implicated in the secret or would never tell those people because they never see those people. this kind of confidant, we can feel very safe and secure knowing that the secret is safe. Um, and that's sometimes a concern. And so when you are choosing your confidant, one final thing to think about is when you're revealing this secret to them, are you essentially entangling them into the problem? Um, do they know all the same people? does the secret involve someone that they know? And so now that they have to watch what they say around people. um, And so if that's the situation, if that's the only person you have to talk to, just know that you're going to make things complicated for that person. But if you can find someone else, you know, you can sort of get around some of those complications by choosing someone who's a little bit on the outside of this. And that's what makes the, these other confidants appealing, um, people who are completely removed from everything. Right. You don't want to just put someone else in the awkward or terrible position that you're in. (laughs) It's like, oh, great. (laughs) Thanks. Um, So something else I thought was so interesting about the book, you talk about the three dimensions of secrets. Can you you unpack that for us? Yes. And so the, the question here is, you know, we're a lot of the research I do is helping us understand what's universal about all our secrets. And so across the different kinds of secrets we keep, we see this this common thread that it's not the secrets that you frequently hide in conversation, it's the ones you frequently think about outside of conversation that are harmful to your well-being. But sometimes what the secret is about matters. And so to help people understand that, it's a little too messy to have 38 different categories of secrets to say, you know, which ones hurt and which ones don't hurt. Um, It it gets too complicated too quickly because you have to consider each pair of secrets and how they compare it to each other. And so instead of that, what you can do is ask a question, which is, is there some way in which we naturally think about how secrets relate to each other? That is, do we see similar clumpings? Um, Are there dimensions by which we think about our secrets that can sort of simplify all the complicated and diverse ways a a secret can look in the world. And it turns out there is Um, asking people through a series of studies to look at the common categories of secrets and to sort them in ways that they find meaningful. We found that naturally people essentially have three ways of thinking about secrets and how secrets differ from each other or how they're similar to one one another. And that, and the first one is morality. Um, some secrets we find to be not immoral and some secrets we find to be more immoral. And so the more immoral we think a secret is, the more we will feel ashamed of that secret. Then secrets can involve other people to different degrees. And some secrets involve other people. Some secrets feel entirely personal and individual. And so the secrets that are on that side, the secrets that don't seem to involve other people are the secrets we feel the most isolated with. And then the third dimension is whether the secret relates to our goals and aspirations. And so secrets really high on this dimension are things about money and work and, you know, cheating at work, whereas secrets really low on that dimension are not so clearly tied to to goals, aspirations. You know, they're not based in logic and reason, but they're based in feeling and emotion. And that, you know, for example, an experience of trauma 
um, sexual orientation, the, these things that don't aren't dictated by logic. Um, those kinds of secrets we feel we have less insight into if it's not clearly related to some specific goal. And so what that means is there's essentially three primary ways in which a secret can hurt us. Um, we can feel ashamed of immoral secrets. We can feel isolated with really personal secrets. And we can feel we lack insight into more emotionally based secrets. And what's useful about knowing that there's three ways in which a secret can hurt you is knowing that that means there's three ways in which a secret might not be hurting you. And by helping people understand which way the secret hurts them, what we do in our studies is help people identify the ways in which a secret is not hurting them. And once you know the ways in which your secret is not hurting you, then you start having an idea of the right path forward or the resources for coping that you actually already have available to you. Is there an uptick in secret keeping? So I, I you know, I, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, okay, you know, for, for talking about sex money, I could see a long time ago when, when we were living in a culture that was less accepting secret keeping, you know, say 1950s secret keeping, maybe a high, I could see as we've evolved culturally, it seems like we're a pretty accepting society with regards to, you know, lots of complicated, you know, whether it's gender, lots of, we're just generally more accepting culture, but then I'd say, okay, last couple of years, cancel culture, you know, internet shaming, maybe not like it is on the spectrum. If you're looking at secret keeping of the last 50 to hundred years, like what does that chart look like? I don't know if you have that data or if you have a gut reaction. I would love to have that data. I would love to look at that chart. Uh, if only someone started this research a hundred years ago. Uh, but, but I think you're right. I think there's ways to imagine where secrecy is getting lower, but I think there's ways to imagine where secrecy, you know, th that that's being balanced out by something, by more secrecy in some other domain. You know, if we think about things like abortion, it, clearly that's something people kept secret more in the past and, and like, you know, and, and partly it's because laws change and, and, you know, there's, we can think of things that change whether how common an experience is and how common of an experience we have about talking about this. But, you know, I, I think with things like social media, it makes it easy to share things more, more broadly, but at the same time, people put up, you know, people put up certain fronts in, in social media and aren't exactly revealing the, the whole story. I think, as certain behaviors become more accepted in society, people probably feel more comfortable talking about them. But it's important to remember that even when we're talking about something, if we're specifically intending to keep it secret from other people, it still might be a secret. So there's a world where maybe we confide our secrets about these difficult issues more today, but maybe we still keep them just as frequently from, from the people we don't want to know about them. Sure. Yeah, I was just thinking sexual orientation, you know, in the 1950s. Yeah, a lot of secret keeping today, no, no big deal. Yeah, that's that's a much better example, totally, yeah. And so we'll segue to, to, to good secrets, you know, marriage proposal, surprise, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example that came to mind for me. So I, I got engaged to my wife, co-founder, co-CEO, co-everything, Colleen, on December 4th, 2008. And I, I remember this like it were yesterday that, you know, Colleen accepted. She's so excited. She calls her mother and 
her, her mother says, you know, and, and her, her father, George, is in the background and calling, she, she says, oh my God, congratulations. And then she turns to George and I'm on speaker. She says, you knew about this? And he said, yes. And, and I don't know what the conversation that happened, but I had asked for Colleen's hand in marriage from, you know, who we call Grandpa George, you know, a month or so before. And I started with, can you keep a secret? And he said, yes. <laughs> and I asked for her hand and he's, you know, said, of course, I think you're a good match and so on. But he took it very literally. And I, George, if you're a listener, I don't know if you are. I, I so appreciate <laughs> keeping that secret, although he's not sure with his wife. It all worked out. There's a happy ending, but that, that just came to mind. So let's talk about good secrets like marriage proposals, surprise, surprises, etc. As you can know from your own story, these secrets feel quite different. Uh, I mean, there's a few reasons why they feel very different. And so the more the most obvious one is we feel good about these secrets. And so it turns out when we feel good about a secret and we're sort of living with that secret alone in our thoughts, even if it's something that requires careful monitoring and, and watching what you say, even if it requires concealment, because it's something you feel good about, we don't see any of the negative effects we normally see for secrecy. Um, and so there's definitely a lesson there. There's a few lessons on how can we take the good things from what it's like to have a positive secret to deal with our other more negative secrets. But besides that, we feel good about these secrets. There's something that's also very different about them, which is for most, not all, um, there's an interesting exception, but for most of the positive secrets we keep, the whole point of keeping them is for this exciting reveal. Um, marriage proposal is a great example uh, of that. Um, but, you know, a couple has been trying to get pregnant and then they do get pregnant um, and then they get to control when that information comes out. And so because we have this clear expiration date set into the future because we feel like we're, we're really planning how this information comes out. We feel really in control over, over our positive secrets. And this is a really healthy feeling when we feel in control of something. Um, when we control, when we just feel in general con control in our lives, we live health, a healthier life. Um, when we feel like we control our lives, we are better at coping with life stressors. Um, people who feel in control live longer. It's it's a really fundamental um, feeling for, for health. And so when people feel in control of their secrets, they are more likely to feel like they're doing the right thing and they can even feel excited and energized by this thing that they are eventually intending to reveal. And so they feel like they, they feel really good and they feel really in control. And so in closing... How do you want us, I, look, I, I think the book is fascinating and all of a sudden we're having a, you know, a deep conversation about secrets, something I think most people don't have. And I think it's an important conversation. What is your hope with the book? H how do you want everyone to be thinking about secrets? We get so used to not talking about secrets that we will have some misconceptions about what they do and, and how they affect us. Um, and we're not always aware of the harm that they can bring. Um, and so I want people to sort of have a better understanding of what secrecy looks like in the world and, and how our secrets harm us. If there's a secret that is bothering you or upsetting you, this is something that you don't have to do alone. Um, and quite often the solution is finding someone to talk to and finding the right person to talk to. And, and, and once you do, it turns out that a, a single conversation can, can make a world of difference. And so... That's certainly something I hope for people to take along with the many other things in that book. And you're not alone.
Absolutely. Um, as isolating as it can feel to have a secret, we all keep secrets and we all keep the same kinds of secrets. Fascinating. Michael, thank you so much. <laughs>